Brooklyn, New York. I'm Lisa Butterworth, and this is Caught Red-Handed. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode three, the continuation of my conversation with Noam Sienna, my favorite henna historian and possibly yours as well. Thanks for sticking around, but I guess it's not really surprising given the crazy cliffhanger we left in the last part of the interview. Uh, We were in the middle of talking about myths surrounding henna and henna history, and we just kind of cut it off short, and this conversation will pick up right where we left off. As Noam posted on Facebook, I think that the second part of the interview is more interesting, though that is kind of like choosing your favorite child. They're both special in their own way. Unfortunately, even the second part of the interview ends in kind of a cliffhanger because both Noam and I clearly had a lot more to talk about and we both had to run at the end of our conversation. So that just means there's more good stuff to come. In my henna world, it seems to be a continuation of the year of the Guyanese wedding. I don't know what it is. I had no idea there were so many Guyanese Indians here in New York. Uh, I had so many last year, and this year I feel like that's all I'm doing. I think maybe I had one bride who actually is from India. Uh, My Guyanese wedding this time was a groom's party. Usually I do the bride, but this time I was hired by the groom. And he was super cool. He's a musician, a composer, and then also working a day job to support his art. So I know what that's like. I guess the groom didn't have enough to do on the few days before his wedding because he also decided to do the music for his wedding. So he's a tabla player, so he was playing tabla, and then he has a friend who came over who plays guitar, and I think also some Indian stringed instrument. Nick will kill me for not knowing what it is. And his little brother plays saxophone, and I can't remember who the other people in the group were, but they were all part of his family somehow. They were playing Indian music, they were playing some kind of free jazz, they were playing blues. So the um, the background music while I was henning was really awesome. The groom's father is also a priest, so he did the opening prayer for the party. So pretty much they had everything handled except for the henna artist, they had to hire me for that. I also did full hands on his mother and his aunt, kind of a light bridal for them, and that was really fun. Some of his female cousins in their 20s were sitting at my table and talked to me a lot about henna. They love, 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 love henna. So they were really excited to have me henna them. And one of them told me that I should be on Instagram. And I just nodded and agreed. And in my mind, I was thinking, geez, I'm old. I really don't get the point of Instagram. So all of you youngins out there, can you tell me what the appeal of Instagram is? Please leave it in your comments on uh, Facebook or on the blog. To me, it's just an app that makes your photos square and blurry, and you can post them online. And I'm wondering, am I missing something? So again, please comment, put me in my place. Speaking of Instagram, I think in general, I'm getting socially networked into oblivion. 
to the point where I can't even keep track of it all. I have several identities online. I'm Some of my identities are like bridal henna artist, Moroccan henna book author, now podcaster, and then also a human being with a day job. And I have Facebook, blog, and Twitter identities for most of these these um, parts of my life. And then I also have a website that has a link to all of these identities. In addition, I have Flickr, I have Pinterest, and then just stuff that I post on one gets cross-posted on some of the others. And honestly, I really can't remember anymore where my stuff is going. And I just have to hope that I'm not posting anything incriminating in the wrong place. Anyway, off the social network uh, bandwagon there, let me just uh, get back to talking about henna, since that's why you're all here. As you know, I'm a diehard bottle user, probably one of the few remaining people who uses Jacquard bottles. And in my 15 years of doing henna, I almost always use the bottle. I never really got good at cones. But I'm trying to learn to use them, and it's for me it's like henning with your non-dominant hand when you always used one hand, or in this case, one tool. So I feel really ill at ease with cones. I have gotten really good at rolling and filling and taping cones, and I actually am finally getting better at working with them. So the way I practice is I bring cones and bottles of henna to party gigs. I don't bring cones to gigs where I'm henning the bride. I just really need to be on my A-game for that. And then I alternate between the two tools throughout the gig. I'm still working on getting the right consistency of paste for cones because it has to be a bit thicker than for bottles. And the other day I accidentally put bottle paste into some of the cones and then put them in the freezer. And so the other day I had a bridal consult here and I thought out one of those cones for this last minute bridal consult and it was a bit too runny. I don't know if it was because the paste was made for bottles or if something about freezing and thawing did it and hopefully I, I should probably just post a question online and see what you all think because I'm not really sure what causes the runniness. So the paste was thin and I did a sample for the bride and it actually turned out pretty well but as as we sat there it started to run a bit. Um, she loved the design and then a few days later I see that she posted a review on my booking site saying that she loved the design but my pace was too runny so she hired someone else. Uh, so very annoying. Uh, but my lesson learned from this is make sure you test your pace before a bridal consult. I think I just get cocky and assume that I make awesome paste every single time and I don't bother to test it. And um, so I got burned by assuming that everything's going to work out fine. I'm actually going into a kind of quiet period for henna, which is kind of a welcome break. My day job has been incredibly busy and henna has been really busy, so I'm a bit exhausted. Though, uh, you know, check back with me in two weeks to see if maybe I'm freaking out about having no clients and um, maybe I won't be enjoying the break so much. Usually when I have these slow periods, I think that it's time to get some models or friends over and start doing some henna on them and experimenting a little. So we'll see. Uh, if that happens, I'll let you guys know and post photos online. So that's it for my little henna world here in New York City. Let's get on with the show now and see how the rest of my conversation with Noam turns out. Enjoy. One of the myths that I actually, I don't know if it's a myth, and I don't know if anybody really knows, but one of the things I always tell people is that henna 
is a skin conditioner and it cools the skin and that's mm. how um, henna started to be used on the skin. I don't know if we can say that. Okay, so I will say, again, I'm not a doctor, so I'm, I'm, di- <laughs> I'm not dispensing with medical advice right now. But um, as far as I understand, the, the properties of henna that we sort of know as, as, as a skin conditioner and also good for, for chapped skin and for infections, those, mm. those have all been sort of proved medically. There are yeah. a number of papers yeah. and journals that, that sort of seem to, to confirm that, that henna does have these beneficial, uh, beneficial. Uh, beneficial properties for, for, for skin, for hands, bringing down body temperature for sure. Antifungal, um, antifungal, exactly. Yeah. Uh, is that how henna first started? I don't think I don't think we know. So so let me then use this as an opportunity to talk a little bit about henna's early history, okay. um, and and bust a few more myths. Yes. Um, okay. The earliest record that I have seen that can be really um, accurately and and definitively shown to represent henna use are the are from ancient Egypt from 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 the uh, from the Egyptian. Uh, ancient Egyptian culture of actual mummified bodies with henna. Mm-hmm. Like you can, you can put that hair under a uh, what's called radio spectry analysis mm-hmm. and see. Yep, this the chemical you know uh, uh, wavelength matches up exactly gotcha. with henna. And they've yeah. done this. They've done this study. Yeah. And so we have scientific scientific. Proof. I mean, sort of as much as you can. I mean, yes, it could be something else that looks identical to henna. Unlikely. Um, you know, we have. I mean. You, you you found a mummy. They have what looks like henna hair. You know, the, literally sometimes you even find like henna branches in the you like in, in Egyptian hair. tombs, not in the hair, but oh, like yeah. in tombs we found henna oh, branches like cool. put there with the body, yeah. like in case they run out and they need more henna. Yes. Um, uh, and then you do a chemical spectra analysis, and it is exactly the same as henna. I, I would feel fairly confident in saying that that. Is most likely henna. I would agree. Um, and uh, and the oldest of those records um, is actually pre what's called pre-dynastic Egypt, which is even before the pharaohs. Right? We think of the pharaohs as like whoa, ancient Egypt. Right. Um, but th- there are there was Egypt. There were people in Egypt even before the pharaohs, uh, before the dynasties, mm-hmm. what are called the the, mm-hmm. the the old kingdom. Mm-hmm. So pre-dynastic Egypt. So we're talking. Uh, uh, I mean, really a long time ago. We're talking uh, roughly about. Um, Somewhere around 3000 BCE. Uh, BCE is a, I use to represent the years before the year zero. It's the same as what Christians refer to as BC. It's right. just to gotcha. clarify that. Um, so that's that's 5,000 years ago. But where is that in terms of Judaism? That's Judaism roughly around the same time as Abraham. If, 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 we, if we try and, um, as far as we can tell, if we, if we try and match up uh, what we can guess about biblical history, which which has much less archaeological basis to it. I, I'm speaking as a scholar, not as a religious person. Okay. Um, it's it's unclear how much of the Bible, of, of what we under, of what we know about Jewish history from the Bible, matches up with what we can guess about Jewish history from archaeology. But if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob mm-hmm. and Sarah and what are called the patriarchs and the matriarchs, mm-hmm. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, if they were real people, they probably lived around somewhere in, in, in what was called Ur, so, so around sort of modern day Iraq, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, around 5,000, 6,000 years ago, which, which neatly actually matches up with the Jewish calendar, um, which uh, right now we are in the year 5773. So you know, year zero is traditionally understood to be creation, um, but it, it sort of seems to align more with actually the creation of sort of the Judaism and the Jewish people seems okay. to date back roughly around the same time as, okay. as, as far as we've been counting. Okay. Um, so that's Egypt. However, let me bust a myth right now. Um, 
there, there are no textual records of any kind that have been definitively shown to represent henna. We have no idea if the ancient Egyptians knew about henna, which, which we can assume because they're using it. We have no idea what they called it. We cannot find it in any text. There have been a number of suggestions. Uh, one of them, which I think is sort of the most likely, is that it was known in Egyptian as a plant called ankh-imi, which means life is in it. Ankh, ankh is like the ankh yep, symbol, yep, that means yep. life. So ankhimi, life is in it, the life is in it plant. Um, but we don't really know very much about... That, so, that um, sounds nice, let's just go with that. It sounds nice, we'll go with that. Um, <laughs> however, some of you may have uh, heard that henna is mentioned extensively in this medical papyrus, the Ebers papyrus, and it was used as a skin medicine, and that there's all of this Egyptian, ancient Egyptian records of henna uh, use as medicine in Egypt. Uh, unfortunately, that has uh, now been shown to be false. Um, that was an unfortunate mistranslation of a word which uh, was translated uh, as uh, something that looked like uh, it was henna cyperus, mm. C-Y-P-E-R-U-S, which looks like it's related to the word cypress for henna, but actually it's the Latin word for papyrus. In oh. Latin, is, is, is cuperus. So, um, so it actually was talking about papyrus. Um, so that's an unfortunate misunderstanding. So we have no textual evidence. So we have archaeological evidence. We have no textual evidence and we have no visual evidence. There's no, uh, I mean, we have a lot of Egyptian art. We have a, a, a tremendous amount of Egyptian art. We know more about what life looked like in Egypt, or at least what they represented it looking mm -hmm. like, than pretty much any other ancient civilization. We know about what color their clothes were. We know about like what their dance moves look like. Like we mm -hmm. really have a tremendous amount of information. And as far as I, and again, I'm not an Egyptologist, so I, I can't say this with like 100% certainty, but in my research, I have never seen any suggestion or even any mention that anywhere in Egyptian art, we have ever seen a representation of, of henna on skin? living people, on, on living skin? people. Or have, I mean, have they ever portrayed like redheads? That's a, that's a good question. I, I can't say that with 100% certainty. But you don't, I don't, I don't, you don't know. know of any depiction of it on skin? On skin, no, yeah. on, on, on skin. So some scholars have suggested that henna was used only as part of the ritual preparations of the body after death. That is, the, the mummies were treated mm -hmm. with henna um, for, some, for some reason that we, we can't figure out um, right. as part of a death ritual. Mm -hmm. I, I would like really slow down on making wild theories here, and, and I would just like, just like put on the brakes <laughs> and say, we, we really don't know. We, we can make guesses, henna we can existed. conjecture. We, all we can say is that we know that they were using henna in ancient Egypt. Yeah. Um, for, 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 still for something. Interesting. It's still pretty interesting. Yeah. But um, um, we know that henna um, spread uh, to surrounding areas in the ancient Near East. So you start to see by like by around 3,000 years ago, so around, around the year 1000 BCE, mm -hmm. you start to see records of henna use um, in places like Canaan, um, in, uh, in a place like uh, called Ugarit, or Ugarit. I think you mm -hmm. and Darcy were, were no, trying to remember something no, about Ugaritic. No, no, no. Um, the language. Just, I thought there was a language like Eurarctic. Ugaritic. Oh, okay. I, this may be what you were, that's okay, the only yeah, thing yeah, I think okay. you can think of. Um, so, so Ugaritic mm -hmm. is the language spoken okay. in this city-state called okay. Ugarit, okay. which is in modern-day Syria. Um, and, and we found, again, we found a number of texts in Ugarit uh, that we actually fortunately are able to read because Ugaritic is very close to, uh, actually, to Biblical Hebrew. It's a Semitic oh, language. And like, even though... Um, like, I can't claim to know Ugaritic. I've never formally studied Ugaritic. Um, uh, um, although my roommate wrote her thesis on uh, Ugaritic, actually, while oh, I was cool. writing my thesis on henna, so we would sort of go back and forth. Um, but uh, it's close enough to Biblical Hebrew that somebody who has studied enough Biblical Hebrew can actually 
work with ugaritic without very too much trouble. Oh, wow. um, uh, so that so we do have uh, some records uh, in ugaritic of uh, of henna use. We we have about um, about one uh, record actually. Um, uh, that about. is that is pretty definitively henna. It's from a myth uh, about Baal and Anath, who are um, gods. Baal is sort of the, the one of the main gods. Anath is uh, his sister slash wife, um, and uh, Baal is uh, killed by Moth, the god Moth, who's death, the god of death. Um, and Anath has to descend into the underworld to save him. Mm -hmm. um, this is uh, sort of similar to uh, if you know the myth of. Um, of uh, Demeter and Persephone in Greek myth, right? Persephone yeah, yeah. goes down to the underworld, yeah. Demeter has to descend. This is a, a motif called the, the descent into the underworld, the harrowing of hell is what it's sometimes called. It appears in a number of world mythologies, Norse mythology, Egyptian mythology, uh, even, uh, even Christian mythology, the descent of Jesus mm -hmm. into hell is sort of a, yeah. seen as an archetype, uh, sort of a, 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 an example of this archetype. Anyway, uh, Anath has to go down into the underworld to rescue uh, Baal and, and ba battle with Moth and defeat him, and she does. And, and we have a fragment that describes her preparations for battle. And one of the ways that she prepares herself is with um, henna, with kupr or kupru, mm -hmm. which, uh, uh, again, Ugaritic is written only with consonants. Yeah. So we have the consonants K-P-R, which Semitic. we can it's guess a Semitic. Semitic-type thing. A root, exactly. Yeah. It's a root language. So we can guess it was probably pronounced something like kupru or kipru. Um, in Biblical Hebrew, by the way, it's kofer. Henna is kofer in Biblical mm -hmm. Hebrew. Um, and so she uses it. But it's not clear how. All we know is it says, henna uh, of seven women, we think. It could be translated like, is she putting on henna from, se like are seven different women bringing her henna and she's putting it on? Is she putting on enough henna, like equivalent for seven women? Is mm. she putting on the henna that's normally reserved for the, her seven serving women. Like, is it maybe, maybe, maybe Benat doesn't mean women at all. Maybe it means palm trees. Uh, you know, like, we don't really know. Um, uh, uh, so, um, so we don't know. And uh, again, there, there are some theories floating around about that this maybe represent, uh, that, that this myth maybe represents some uh, like uh, larger cultural metaphor about the seasons and about the harvest festival. And, but we have no evidence of that. Um, you know, there was one scholar in the 1970s who tried to argue that this myth really should be read as a description of like the cultural ceremonies around the harvest festival. His work is, is really on the fringes of, 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 of scholarship. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's really very, all we can say is that if this is definitely henna, then we know that the people of ancient Ugarit knew what henna was, and that we can say that they probably were using it in some sense, maybe ritually, maybe, yeah. like, that, that in their myth cycle, they had the goddess Anath use it to prepare herself for battle. We, we don't so really... So that shows, like, a purposeful use... Of, of henna and uh, ritualistic, right? Not as a and, cosmetic, and it, exactly, and yeah. it relates to there. There's a motif in Ugaritic literature around um, sort of preparing yourself for battle and washing your arms and red. There's a lot of blood imagery, so you'll see like red, like snail dye is used, or like right, red water, right. or or they red in their hands. They they red in their hands. Um, is that with henna? Is it with blood? Is it with dye? We don't really know. Yeah. But there's something that's sort of, there's a thread here. So we can say that they, they knew what henna was and we knew that they were doing it on skin because there's this connection with red. So, so, yeah. so we, we know that they knew the stain. Um, and again, the root of the word uh, kupru or kofer or kipru, the root meaning of the root is uh, smearing or spreading. 
Um, so for example, it's what's used in the Bible. The same root is used when Noah builds his ark, right? No, mm -hmm. yeah, there's going to yeah, be yeah. a flatty, flatty, right? So he's building his ark <laughs> and um, he uh, smears it. He coats it with uh, pitch, with bitumen to, mm -hmm. to keep it, make it mm -hmm. waterproof. Um, and that the word used there is the same root as the, as the word for henna. Um, and so you do see the word henna in the Bible, um, but unfortunately it's just in a description of, of sweet-smelling plants. So we don't know whether the, the, we can't say for sure that the ancient Israelites knew that henna was used for staining, but, but I would imagine it's not a hard argument to make. Um, since the root does mean smearing, we do have records in other Canaanite literature. Yeah. Um, and we, we do see, um, we, we know that the plant was grown in the land of Israel. We see both right. from Jewish records and also from non-Jewish records. There were a, a number of Greek and Roman uh, travelers and botanists who visited the land of Israel in the you know the, the third century BCE, the, the first century BCE. People like people like uh, Pliny, the, the elder, mm -hmm. the naturalist, mm -hmm. or, or Dioscorides, who's a, yeah. a Greek botanist, and they say things like. Uh, um, they, they talk of, they sort of have like plant dictionaries and they say like the henna, which in Greek is kupros, it's a, a loan word from the Semitic. Uh, it grows uh, mostly in, uh, in Ashkelon, which is a city today on the coast of Israel and uh, in Egypt. Uh, it has sweet smelling flowers. Uh, it's uh, used, um, it's used uh, for perfume. Uh, the leaves will, can, you can crush them up and you can use them to dye your hair orange. They're good for headaches. It's good for you know, you know, uh, wounds, for bruises, things like that. So they, they clearly knew what henna was. They were clearly using it right. um, point, in, the, in, yeah. the, in the sort of the Greco-Roman world. Again, we, 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 we have some sort of textual evidence. We have very little archeological evidence and we have very little visual evidence. There have been mm -hmm. some suggestions that um, you know, there are some statues that show henna use. It's, it's, it's very hard to, to prove these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, you know, you do have statues that have reddish-brown markings on them, we do, but they have reddish-brown markings all over. Like, we're talking on their faces, on their bodies, right, right. It, it, on their hands, on their, on their stomachs. Like, it, it's not clear what that is supposed to represent. Is it supposed to represent jewelry? Is it supposed to represent painting? Is it supposed to represent tattooing? Is it supposed to represent... Um, some kind of adornment? Is, is there some ritual purpose? We, we have no idea. Right. We have, we right. really just, we don't know right. a lot. Yeah. Um, and again, we're, we're dealing with a lot of very different cultures and very different time frames. So it, it's very hard to say, oh, we have one, you know, it's like, I keep coming back to the metaphor, like to the biology metaphor about like, studying evolution is very difficult from the fossil record because you only have whatever random things happen to get fossilized. Right. So you have like one animal that was fossilized like like seven million years ago and another animal that was fossilized like in a different place like six million years ago and you're trying to figure out what happened in those million years, right? It's very difficult. Yeah. So, so we have one textual record from Ugarit from 1200 BCE. And then we have a, a, a statue from, from Cyprus from 600 BCE. BCE, and then we have one, um, you know, uh, textual reference in a in a in a in a Jewish text from 200 CE. So okay, we have three things here, but they're geographically separated, you know, by by hundreds if not thousands of miles, and temporally separated by hundreds if not thousands of years. Yeah. So which it, is huge. It's very I mean, hard to say. It's very hard to say. Oh, this statue is an illustration of this myth when that myth is from a different place in time yeah. um, and, and culture and yeah. language. So it's, 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 it's hard to kind of connect the dots when they're really quite so far apart, but we're, we're trying our best. So does that then bust the myth, or is what you're saying about that, um, can that be used to bust the myth that you know the Indians invented 
decorating the skin with henna or yeah, the oh, for Persians sure. Yeah, did. for sure. I mean, I mean, is there any proof ooh. of either of those? Okay, so so then let me talk about that. Um, well, so first of all, we can definitely bust the myth that henna was like always associated with weddings. There, there is no association that I can find in the ancient world that clearly connects henna with wedding ceremonies. We have a lot of descriptions of wedding ceremonies. We have some descriptions of henna. There, there's nothing that clearly indicates that henna has any relationship to love, to marriage, to sexuality, to anything like that. In the ancient, in the ancient world. world. Okay. I'm talking up and until, um, I mean, the first time that you, that you really start seeing that clearly is really in the Middle Ages. Okay. And, and that's All and right. that's ceremonially. Yeah. You start seeing, for example, the first. Um, you know, there are a couple of early mentions in Persian poetry about brides having henna decorated hands. Okay. We're talking like 900 CE, like a thousand CE. Mm -hmm. um, you, we have a, the first explicit mention that that I've seen is of, of a wedding using a henna ceremony. Is um, a, a Jewish marriage contract from Egypt from the 1200s that we found in the Geniza, which is like a big sort of uh, storage, document storage. Uh, library? Li well, it's no, because it's when you throw things out. In Judaism, oh. you don't, in Judaism, you don't want to throw out any document that has the name of God in it or that has like quotations from the Bible. These are sacred texts. We want to treat them with respect. So you don't throw them in the garbage. Instead, you bury them. Um, oh, so like a, a Torah, for example, uh -huh. a Torah scroll, like if it rips, mm -hmm. you have to bury it. Um, if it's if it breaks, you have to bury it. You can't. So this throw it is out. a place where so, you. So 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 synagogues things. often have a room that you'll put documents in that will sort of. And once you have enough, you you bury them. What happened in Cairo, interestingly enough, was two things happened. First of all, for some reason, they uh, didn't just put Torahs. They put anything that was written in the Hebrew alphabet. For some reason, the letters themselves took on such significance that anything that was written in the Hebrew alphabet got put into the Geniza. That means business receipts. That means personal correspondence. That means wow. like all sorts of, of, of inventory lists, of, of merchants' records, of shipping, of letters, of, of rabbis' memoirs, of all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, that was the first thing. So they put all of that Lucky in us. there. Uh, awesome. And they, didn't, they never buried it. For whatever reason, they just they got a big room and they just kept throwing things in there. Um, until the 1890s, when a, a Jewish scholar from Europe was visiting, and somebody gave him a, they, they, he said he was interested in buying old manuscripts. Somebody <laughs> gave him a page, and he looked at it and he said, where, where did you get this? This is not like, you know, when you're buying old manuscripts, you sort of can expect what you're going to find. And it was something yeah. that like, he was like, we literally have no knowledge of this text except it's Greek translation. We don't even know if it had a Hebrew original. And I recognize, because I'm a scholar, this is clearly the Hebrew original of this text from the 1100s. Where, where did you get this? And they said, oh, there's just this old room in the synagogue and it's full of all of these old books that nobody wants. So he uh, oh booked God. it over to the synagogue and over the course of the next few years proceeded, actually, excuse me, it was a woman, sorry, I don't want to erase women at history. It was, it was actually a female scholar who brought the manuscript to a Jewish scholar in Cambridge, Solomon Schechter. The woman's name, it was a pair of twins. It was two women. I wish I could remember their names, but I can't. But uh, they brought it to a Jewish scholar named Solomon Schechter, and he then excavated, sort of uh, evacuated yeah. the uh, Geniza from Cairo to Cambridge, where, where most oh. of it is now. Um, and they're still today, it's been like 150 years, and they're still today cataloging and going through the manuscripts. One of the things we have found a lot of are wedding certificates, um, and, and, and a lot of them talk about, like, the groom's family is going to pay for the shoes and the caterer right, and the right. this and the, the so tablecloths <laughs> and the henna ceremony, right? Ah, yes. As is customary, right? There's a, there's a ketubah that says, the groom's family will pay for the henna ceremony as is customary. So we know that it's customary already mm -hmm. by the 1200s to have a henna ceremony in Egypt. Um, 
in terms of designs, again, it's hard to say who invented what. We can only say what's the earliest evidence that we have. And then as soon as we find earlier evidence, we have to sort of adjust the picture. We have to push yeah, things back a little yeah. bit. You're always, that's the job of a scholar is always like pushing like, okay, this is the earliest that we found, or this is the farthest that we found, but, but can we push a little bit this way? Can we push a little bit that way? How do we need to readjust this picture in light of this finding, in light of that finding? Um, the, 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 but the, I have to say that I have to say as a scholar, the oldest depictions, whether textual or visual that I've seen of actual patterns mm -hmm. in henna uh, do come from Persia. They come from, from Persia from, from like the 11, mm -hmm. 1200s. Sorry, I, India. Sorry, India. Um, but I, I just... Although the borders were kind of fluid the borders, back then, Yeah, exactly. So, and of course, right, and, you know, we and have Parsis in, in India. In India. And, <laughs> and of course, the Mughals did end up going into India and bringing... Yeah. And bringing so, so whether they brought henna with them, whether they brought the designs with them, whether they had already been in contact through trade previously, it, it's hard to sort of make a historical argument. Yeah. Um, but again, and, and again, I'll admit, I, I'm not a scholar of Indian henna, and, and as much as I like it, I actually don't find it nearly as interesting as ancient henna in the ancient world or mm -hmm. henna in the Jewish world. Uh, not to say that the Jewish world doesn't include India. There are Jews in India. <laughs> but um, my focus has really been on sort of early and medieval and late medieval henna records in like Morocco, in North Africa, in the, in the Middle East, in Central Asia. Yeah. Um, I've done very little work on the history of Indian. And again, it's not it's not one of my strengths. I don't speak. Yeah. I don't. I can't read Sanskrit. Yeah. I don't read any Indian languages. Mm -hmm. I I don't know anything of Indian history. So it, for me to do that, I would need to like go get a whole another doctorate yeah, in, exactly. in, in, yeah. in 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 Indianology, yeah. which which I could. But, yeah. but and I'm sure I, there are people out there. And I'm sure there are people that, sure. So and you I, do I what would you hope do so. Best exactly. So, so, you know, just because of I happen to have had a very good Jewish education, I happen to also be interested in Judaism professionally. I, I know enough about Jewish history, about Jewish languages, about Jewish culture, um, that I can do this research, I think, more easily than, yeah. than somebody who yeah. is coming from the outside. So, um, so I, I, I can't really answer as much as I would like to questions no, about okay. India definitively. Yeah. I can only yeah. say, sort of, it's on the margins, I would say, of my research. It's sort of yeah. on the. Like, I'm sort of interested in, oh, yeah, and then henna spread to India. But let's get back to uh, yeah. the topic, yeah, here, right. which is, you know, <laughs> Egypt or, yeah. or Morocco yeah. or whatever, whatever it is. Another one of the myths that comes up, and I'm sure it comes up for you being a Jew, yeah. is um, it's not part of our culture. We mm. don't do this. And this is right, something yeah. that you mentioned before. So... Um, so what's your what's your answer to that with uh, clients? I mean, and, it's and then also a bigger picture, right? So I mean, what, I I happen to be Jewish, so so when a, you know when a, when a client says like, oh, you know, we 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 don't do this, it's like, well, what what are we doing right now? Like, yeah, like and what I, do you mean like, by we? What do you mean by we? Right? Like, what, what's, what's that line from from the Lone Ranger? Which we yeah. is that Kimosa? <laughs> yeah, exactly. White, pale face. Like, who are you who are you calling we? Um, well, I mean, what I, what I generally say is 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 something like. Um, well, you know that um, henna actually has been used for thousands of years. Well, I judge the, judging, you know, judging the situation, I usually either start with, you know, henna has been used, you know, in a number of different communities across the world for thousands of years. You know, there are Jews in Morocco, um, and of course, they use henna in Morocco, and the Jews use henna in Morocco as part of their Moroccan Jewish identities. Um, if it's a religious crowd, I often like to open with, do you know that henna is mentioned in the Bible? Oh, that's and a good that one. usually gets them in because. Um, Often they don't know that. Um, it it does a number of things. It it sort of allows me to demonstrate that there is a, a valid. I mean, not that I think that that it's valid or any less valid uh, 
um, of a Jewish practice, whether or not it's grounded in the Bible, but right. especially for religious communities, Jewish practice needs to be grounded in what they see as like classical Jewish text, right. which means either the Bible or rabbinic literature. And if gotcha. something's not yeah. in the Bible or rabbinic literature, then it's sort of a folk custom that can be. And you see the same thing, by the way, mm-hmm. I, I see that as an outsider, the same phenomenon in Islam and in Muslim communities mm-hmm. of like, there's like the canonical text and then anything outside the canonical text is like folk culture. And if we don't like it, we can just get rid of it. And, he, um, and in some cases it's considered anti-Islamic. And exactly. Yeah. And anti-Islamic. And, and Speaking of to Morocco a, specifically, right. but we can go into um, that later. Yeah. And, and you see that to a lesser extent with Judaism. You don't have the same, uh, exact same kind of, uh, like, uh, anti, like, but, but there's, yeah. there are certainly trends to say like, oh, it's not so important. It's not really Jewish. Um, it's not really authentically Jewish, mm-hmm. you know, air quote, authentic, yeah. uh, uh, quote unquote. Um, so what I usually is important for me to say is like, A, henna is something that has been done historically by Jewish communities. So mm-hmm. whatever you want to say about whether it's okay or not okay, you cannot deny the historical fact that literally dozens of different Jewish communities over literally thousands of years have been doing henna. So you, you can't argue with that. Like that's, yeah. that is a historical yeah. fact. Um, and B, henna is deeply grounded in the Jewish tradition. First of all, it is mentioned in classical Jewish text as, uh, you know, first of all, it is mentioned in the Bible. It is mentioned in the Mishnah uh, and the Talmud. It is something that medieval rabbis like Maimonides uh, and other uh, medieval scholars talk about as being a Jewish practice. They talk about, for example, in legal discussions about um, ritual cleansing, like hand washing or going to the mikvah, which is a, a ritual bath. Mm-hmm. Like, does henna intrude? And, and they say, um, oh, you know, there's this dye that women use. It's called henna, um, and it d- doesn't interfere with ritual cleansing. Just for you to know, it doesn't interfere with ritual cleansing because it's for the same reason as in Islam. It's it's considered part of the skin, not a barrier to the skin, so you're allowed to. Oh Like yeah. if you wash yeah. your hands, you need to have all of your skin in contact with the water, mm-hmm. and if you have like paint on your hands, then that's going to be a barrier, a barrier, so you have to remove yeah, it. But henna is considered part of the skin. But that's oh. I mean that's we're talking like this is medieval Jewish literature. This is these are what are called. Um, well, they're like the authorities of Jewish law. They're called the Rishonim in Hebrew, mm-hmm. the, the first like authorities of legal law, um, like of, of law, legal or, or illegal. Jewish law. Jewish law, exactly. That's the word. Thank okay. you. Um, but you can't argue with that. Like they, right. it's not like this is a, a practice that like just appeared a couple of years ago right. without any context. This right. This is something that, that has been a part of Jewish life for thousands of years, and it's something that has brought meaning to Jewish people for thousands of years and that it continues to bring meaning to Jewish people today. So for me, a practice that is grounded in Jewish tradition is used to transmit Jewish values is something that has brought meaning and continues to bring meaning to Jews around the world. That that's pretty good for a Jewish practice. You know, for me, like, like that's up there with like, yeah, we should definitely keep doing this. Um, so, I mean, I, I really see my, I don't know if I was going to say my life's work, but my, my, my life's work, at least as a henna artist, mm-hmm. is really primarily trying to, to get the Jewish people in the Jewish community, at least in North America, to, to reclaim. It's not, I'm not trying to get them to, like, adopt this new practice. I'm trying to get them to reclaim part of their own heritage. Right. Like, people are, I think, this is like a general observation on, on contemporary life. Yeah. Um, spiritual contemporary spiritual life in North America, uh, people I think really crave ritual. People really 
as social beings need to feel like our lives are grounded in some larger picture of what it means to be a person. And when we have important moments in our lives, we want to mark those with ceremony. Mm -hmm. And there's so little ceremony in our world today. I mean, maybe maybe graduation, you know, has the pomp and circumstance. Blowing and out get the dressed candles on your birthday blowing cake. Out your candle, so we invent all these rituals, right? Yeah. We're, 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 we've created really all these rituals. Invented. And they really are invented. Yeah. They really are modern rituals. Um, and, and, I, and I think at least for, for in the Jewish community and, and especially, um, especially, you know, for people who are searching for, for, for some kind of connection, kind of sort of spiritual meaning, you know, I, I say, well, you know, they say, we're, we're looking for a ritual that's going to help us prepare our family as our son becomes bar mitzvah. And we want something that's going to sort of ground us and get us to, to, to feel the moment and live and, and talk about what this means for us as a family that our child is entering adulthood. You know, what, what, what are we going to do? It's like, don't make something up. Like, there is yeah. already a ritual for that. Yeah, exactly. We've actually, exactly. like, why reinvent the wheel? Thousands of years of Jewish, you know, continuity of Jewish community have, have actually already facilitated your ritual life yeah. by creating ritual moments. I'm not saying Just you have to do it exactly like they did it 100 or 500 years ago in Morocco. We can't. We're not, we're not living 500 yeah. years ago in Morocco. But there are certainly aspects that we can from it that we can claim from it and say you know we don't do anything like we did 500 years ago but there are many things that we say you know um you know eating this particular jewish food yeah. connects me to some larger picture of what it means to be jewish or yeah. or going to synagogue services or not or not you're reading this book like whatever it is um i, I would like to see henna become reclaimed as part of that um yeah. and so that you know and and, and you know, it's still early. I've been doing this, as I said, really not only for a few years, but I, but I, I am at least if I can sort of gauge from my clients' reactions, people are, on the whole, I mean, you know, with some exceptions, on the whole, people are 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 so enthusiastic about, mm -hmm. at least in my, my Jewish clientele, are so enthusiastic about, um, feeling like this is not something that we're inventing now. This is like so meaningful for us now as contemporary Jews living in North America and as people who are tapping into a tradition that is something that is part of my heritage, even if it's not immediately part of my, like, yes, my like great-great-grandmother did Polish. not do henna. Yeah. You know, my my great-great-grandmother living in, in, in Mogilov in the Ukraine did not do henna. Um, you know, and I connect with her in other ways. Believe me, you know, there are other things that I do in my yeah, life that, that connect me to that. Yeah, you have recipes. recipes and I have stories and yeah. I have folk sayings and things like that. Yeah. Um, but that that's irrelevant because Judaism is not, is more than just a bloodline. It's a culture and culture is transmitted sort of both vertically and horizontally, right? Like what I mean is that that my heritage as a Jew is the entirety of the Jewish tradition. And that mm -hmm. includes people that I don't agree with, and I have to struggle with that. It includes things that, that make me uncomfortable. I can't disown it. It's part mm -hmm. of my heritage. Yeah. You know, uh, Part of my heritage is grappling with what it means to be the inheritor of, of these thousands of years of, of literature and poetry and song and music and food and and struggles and war and death and blood and like oh there's a lot there's a lot to, to hold on to and um it's it's all part of me it all it's has all part shaped of that bloodline it's all exactly this is not a like literal the, bloodline it's yeah, all part exactly. of it's all part of that line it's all part of the 
of, of, of the package of what it means to be part of the Jewish people. And like, look, the, the, the point, the, the proof is people can convert to Judaism. You can't convert to being Italian, right? <laughs> but, but people convert to Judaism and, and all of a sudden, all of that Jewish heritage is theirs. Yeah. You know, their parents weren't even Jewish. They yeah. weren't even Jewish when they yeah. were born. And yet they have made a statement in saying, I want to join the Jewish people. They have now thrown their lot in for better or for worse <laughs> with this ragtag, you know, group of, of, of people um, with with a, with a really lot of a lot of baggage, and I yeah. mean that you know sort of like yeah we have a lot of baggage, but but we have a lot of luggage. Like you know everyone carries a lot of luggage, and when you've been traveling for six thousand years, you you have a lot of luggage. Yeah. You know. Um, or and, you travel light. Or you travel light. Yeah, traveling. we don't we don't travel light. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we don't. Um, but no, it's fair. all part of that, and so and mm-hmm. so I that's been so profoundly meaningful for me. Like henna has so enhanced my Jewish life. Like as a Jew, oh, it's that's extraordinary. And uh, like, like even if just for that, even if even if for what Hannah has done for my spiritual life, I am I'm eternally grateful for how it has changed my life as a person, as a spiritual person, as and as a person person. Um, and I know that it has touched other people. And like, I, I know that I'm not the only one who does this. I, I know that all of us has, have, have as henna artists have had the opportunity to touch people's lives and to make meaningful ceremonies. And look, I know there are a lot of artists who don't really, you know, who do festivals and, and, mm-hmm. and even there, there's a connection, Yeah, you know, and there's always that one moment, that one, you know, even I'll tell you a story. The first, one of the first interactions I ever had as a, as a, as a henna artist, as a professional henna artist, I was doing a festival. I was actually doing this Toronto street festival called Festival on Bloor. It was like my first year as a henna artist. I was terrible. I don't know what possessed me to do it. <laughs> gotta start um, sometime. You gotta, you gotta start sometime. <laughs> and there I am. And I, this was before I'd even, um, really, I'd like sort of started my research but I was like really just at the beginning stages, and I'm sitting in this fe- I'm sitting in this festival booth, and this old man walks by, you know, and walks past. Okay, you know, and, and then he like comes back and sort of pokes his nose in, and I'm thinking, this this really could could be very bad, like, or it, like just like old men generally don't have like such nice things to say about Hannah. Sometimes they have yeah. sort of oh, interesting yeah, things like, to say about yeah. Hannah, but but I, I wasn't expecting him to be like a client. You know, like they're, they're yeah, very rarely. Like he was just there to make a comment like, about what, what you were doing. Either like, what is that? Or that's nice. Or mm-hmm. that's weird or whatever. Anyway, so he comes and he sits down in the chair. <laughs> so already I'm like, something's up. And he says, um, he says, you are a henna artist. <laughs> I said, you got me there. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> and he said, uh, I am a Berber. I am a Kabyle Berber from Algeria. Nice. I know. <laughs> That you henna artists know the secret patterns to unlock the magic of the jnun. Oh my and god. And I said... No, that's not what I thought I you said, were going to say. Yeah, yes, we do. <laughs> we, absolutely. Day one of henna training is the magic jnun unlocking yeah, uh, patterns. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm like thinking, like, what am I going to do? Uh, and he proceeds to tell me that um, he believes that somebody has put an evil eye on him. Um, that he has had a, a spirit, a negative spirit that has taken over and he would like to get rid of it. And he knows that Henna has the power awesome. to do that. Um, I'm so jealous and, of you. Uh, and uh, so he sat down and I start doing this. I don't know, I did some pattern. I made it up. I, I'm 
letting all my secrets out now. I made it up. I don't know what it, I did. Some over You're the first person and, to ever do that. It's uh, well, you it's know, really like I know I've let shameful. us all down. All of yes, you had artists. All, all of you who do know the secret patterns yes. to unlock the magic of the, you know. And it was like I said something about opening to new possibilities, and I drew a little open door or something. Like I don't know, I did something, and, Gosh, and I've I never done that. Gave, I gave him some. Uh, we say in Yiddish a spiel. Like I gave okay, him some gotcha, little speech gotcha. about yeah, like yeah, yeah. this part is going to open the door, and this part is going to be the flower of growth, and this part is going to be. And 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 as I. And, but, and as I was saying it, I was watching him and, and it really, I, I, I saw that something was happening. Like he walked out of that booth, changed. He, he walked out convinced that, that he was going to have a new life. And, and I'm sure that he did. Like, I, I'm yeah, sure that things yeah. turned around for him. And Some, and, some Jewish guy and, on the street right, gave him henna right. designs. And, of course his it, life no, is going to change. But, but like... it was a real profound moment for me as an artist for me to recognize that even when I don't know what I'm doing, mm-hmm. I'm doing something important. Absolutely and, that, absolutely. and that even when I don't think that what I'm doing has any meaning, it may have meaning for the person who's receiving it. And that I have the power... We all do. We have the power inside of us to really do something more than draw pretty pictures. Like, we really yeah. have deep power. You know, he really believed. And did I really do something? Was it the henna that really did something? Was, was it, it his placebo? belief? Was it a placebo? Was it psychosomatic? Yeah. You know, yes, it, all, of those. all of those. It's a triangle, right? And you, yeah. have, you have me, the henna artist, you have the henna itself, and you have the client. And, yeah. and somewhere in the middle of that triangle... You know, that, that's where the magic happens, but right? But back in Algeria, they probably also believe that, sure. that that triangle exists and that For all sure. parts are, are very For powerful. Sure. So. For sure. You know, so so that's like the, the you know the magic of being a hand artist. I, it's it's there, and that's that's a lot of power. And and I sometimes forget to 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 own up to that. Um, but my work with 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 Jewish ritual, like when I'm working a festival, at sometimes this was a rare encounter. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I'm working a festival, when I'm doing a birthday party, it's it's hard for me to remember that I'm doing something significant. Absolutely. Um, but you know, when I do ceremony, and that's that's what I love to do. Like as an artist, that was my next question. Was like, what is what is your henna work? You know, like my what ju- do you do you know, for your clients? So 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 I create ritual. I, my business card says Noam Sienna, henna artist, researcher, ritual facilitator. And everyone always says, what does that mean, ritual facilitator? <laughs> it means I facilitate ritual. It means, and you know, maybe it comes from, I come from a rabbinic family. I come from a family of educators and rabbinic mm-hmm. facilitators and ritual people. Like, when I, like, growing up, it was regular for us to be called upon to, like, like bless people off of the cuff. I don't know if mm-hmm. you, like, it's a skill that you just learn of, like, somebody's in front of you and you need to give them a blessing. It's, like, a, a thing that pastor's kids develop. Yeah, it's, like, yeah. you just know, you, you know just, what to say. You, you just know, know how, how to, step up. you know if how to step up. somebody says, say grace, you can You know, you it. just step it up. So, um, so I grew up in that kind of a family, and so I, I think I sort of already had that, and and you know, so I help. I've done rituals. I mean, I do traditional rituals. I do wedding rituals. I do. I'm actually doing one tomorrow or uh, Sunday. I'm going out to Westchester on Sunday to do a, a henna ritual for a friend of mine who's getting married. You know, rituals for for people for boys and girls becoming bar mitzvah or becoming bat mitzvah for births. For well, what does that entail? Like I've done henna at events, right? But, but I'm what is just, a ritual? Henna? I'm, like, you know, I entail? could be a clown doing be a clown. balloon animals, right? You know, for all I'm okay. doing a ritual. Okay. So, 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 what's so the how? Difference? So how? What's the difference? So, well, so first is I'm coming in as a ritual facilitator. I make that clear. I'm not. I mean, I've done once a wedding where I was like the clown, like I was the entertainment, mm-hmm. and I hated it so much that I said yeah, to myself, I'm never monkey. doing that again. Right. I'm. I'm never doing that again. I'm. I. 
And like that's again, speak, you know, like to think about like power that we have. We have the power to be the henna artist that we want to be. And I see so many people struggling with this, and they say like, if you don't want to do festivals, don't do festivals. If you don't yeah. want to do brides, yeah. don't do brides. Yeah. If you don't want to do Chinese characters, take them out of your freaking exactly. book. Like, Amen. Right? Amen. Like, do what you want to do. So I said, I don't want to be the entertainment. I'm only going to do henna rituals. And when people call me and say, I'd like you to to do henna for my wedding, I say, sure. Here's what I do, and I so here's what I do. Yeah, tell me. Um, I'm so curious. So I come in, um, I first of all, I have a, like, a, I sort of meet with the couple to sort of assess what exactly their needs are, what their Jewish background is, what their sort of comfort with Jewish language, you know, sometimes they're very religious, sometimes they're not so religious. Generally speaking, I invite the guests to come in. I give a little five minute spiel, a little five minute speech about what henna is and how it's used and history and why we're here and all of that. Um, and I make it very clear that I'm in charge of the evening. The, the, everyone else is sitting down, I'm in charge. The I'm the henna. MC. I'm the henna MC, and I'm the ritual facilitator. Cool. Right? I'm not being bossed around by the mother or by anybody else. Um, I then invite people to open what I say to open a ritual space, and that, and depending on the crowd, that can take a number of different forms. Um, I have a special rug, a henna ritual rug that I use. It's a it's a large. It's like about you can't see this, but it's about this size. <laughs> it's, it's sort of a large four larger, by six, four by six uh, uh, embroidered Jewish uh, prayer rug. From uh, from Bukhara, from uh, what's now Uzbekistan, oh, yeah. um, and I use it only for henna rituals. It's a, like a, for me like a sacred ritual object. I only use it for henna rituals, and I spread it out and I sort of walk around it in the circle. And I say, you know, traditionally henna rituals begin uh, by acknowledging the spirits that are in the room. Um, traditionally, henna ceremonies uh, in 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 Morocco, for example, would begin by offering a little henna in each corner of the room for the jnun, for the spirits, just to say, you know, we're here, we're about to do something significant. We're hoping that it's going to go well. We acknowledge that there are other forces here and we are going to sort of keep them at bay. If it's part of your spiritual path, I say, to acknowledge the presence of spirits and other forces, now is a good time to, to close your eyes and do that. If that's not part of your spiritual path, that's fine. I invite you to close your eyes and use this moment to focus your energies on the reason why we're here, your best wishes for the couple, drawing in the positive energies, and clearing yourself of any negative energy that we want to keep away from this happy occasion. And you people love it. It's like this is what wow. people want. We want... We want somebody to allow yeah. us to feel like this is a significant moment. Because I even feel that just listening to you describe it, it just feels... Already it's yeah, a different atmosphere. Yeah, it really just... Even just having this conversation with you, it changed the atmosphere. Changed the atmosphere. Yeah, okay. so, really so then I open that. And then, um, and then I start doing the henna. And it's very important for me to control the crowd while I'm doing henna. Because if they start talking and schmoozing, we say in Yiddish, like... Like chatting, I live in New York, eating, we know these you know, words. You, we might have podcast <laughs> okay. listeners from India. You know, I don't know true. what the word schmoozing means. Um, you know, so people start chatting and snacking. We're going to break the space. We're going to lose the atmosphere. So I yeah. do a number of things. First of all, de again, depending on the crowd, um, I have sort of in my back pocket a list of uh, chants and short songs that I can teach that, um, <laughs> that I'll often teach at least one or two, and I'll ask people to sing while I'm working. Oh, very cool. Um, again, traditionally, henna ceremonies would be full of songs. There are many traditional songs that are associated with the henna ceremony. I, I happen to know the Jewish ones. I'm, I'm sure there are also non-Jewish ones. Yeah. Um, most people that I do today don't know those songs. Fine. We're still going to honor the intention by singing other songs that are appropriate for mm -hmm. the henna ceremony. Um, one custom that I do, uh, which I borrowed from, uh, from a Persian custom, it, it, Persian Jews, after the henna is done, traditionally would wrap the henna up in special ribbons mm -hmm. called henna band. Um, which means henna ribbons. Um, you might not have guessed that, but uh, 
the, the henna ribbons are sort of these beautiful embroidered cloths and they're passed down from, from mother to daughter kind of situation. Yeah. Um, and they're used to wrap up the henna. And symbolically, you're, you're wrapping up the henna. You're like tying in all of the good things that, that, all of the good energies that have been created in the henna ceremony. Think about the significance of knots for weddings, like tying the knot, right? Mm -hmm. Like tying is a very important metaphor when we're tying two people together. We're tying mm -hmm. families together and we're tying in all of our good wishes. So I don't have any henna bun. I don't have any traditional henna cloth. My mother, unfortunately, neglected to pass them on to me uh, or her mother to her yeah. or whatever the case may be. But I thought, why don't we make our own? So what I usually do is I bring along a spool of very of wide white satin ribbon and I unroll it and I say to each uh, to the guests, I say, I invite each of you while I'm hennaing to uh, take a marker and write on this ribbon a wish, a blessing, uh, 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 some uh, hope for the happy couple um, or for, you know, if it's a bar mitzvah or whatever it is, this, you know, um, uh, that's going to help uh, carry this couple or this person through their transition, through their, through their sacred space. Um, we're going to tie up the henna with these ribbons and all of your wishes and blessings are going to be tied up with them. So that sort of keeps them, that's another thing to keep them occupied. Um, Sometimes if it's a, a small enough or a large enough crowd, depending on the size, I might have people even come up to the couple one by one and, mm -hmm. and offer them blessings while I'm working. Like while I'm working on their feet, they can come up and, yeah. and sort of whisper yeah. blessings um, or work on other like little things, little, you know, little things like that, that, that remind people that we're actually doing sacred space. It's here. Not just a party. Even, you can even invite, you can even invite people. You can say, while I'm working, uh, I invite people to tell stories about the couple and f funny stories or, mm -hmm. or f favorite memories and that's often a great, a great oh, time for, yeah, for you know, and, that, and that's, again, that's a traditional function of the henna ceremony. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to bring people together to celebrate this couple or this person or this, yeah. whatever it is, um, and to, to bring up all those happy memories. So why not invite people to say, in a, in a sort of ceremonial way, where, you know, I'm going to be working on the henna, and while I'm working, let's fill the air with laughter and song and, and stories about this, these people that we love so much, because really, ultimately, the function of the henna ceremony, one of the functions of the henna ceremony, is to remind people who are going through a vulnerable time, who are going through yeah. transition, yeah. who are entering an unknown stage, to remind them that they are not alone, that they are surrounded by a network, by a support system yeah. of people yeah. who love them. I mean, you have to think that, that the henna ceremony developed in places where people were routinely married off as young people, like like in their to teens, strangers. to strangers that they yeah. never met, and 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 had no idea how to, what to expect, and had no idea like, what it meant to be the, the adult woman in the house when you're only twelve years old, and 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 it's terrifying. I can yeah. only imagine. And yeah. to have a night where all of your your mother and your sisters and your aunties and your and your new mother-in-law and all of the women are surrounding you to say, we're here. We are going to support you. We're going to show you what you need to do. We're, we love you. There are these songs that are traditionally sung at Jewish henna ceremonies. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking songs that that are call and response songs between the the bride and the mother, or between the groom and the father. Wow. Ya, ya ummi, ya ummi, my mother, my mm. mother, how could you, how could you give me away? How could oh you sell God. me? They say, oh the God. father's, the father's response is, your groom paid a lot of camels for you, my dear. <laughs> um, but, but then it goes, he goes, but then he goes on to say, of course we're not leaving you. Of course mm. we're not abandoning you. We're right here. We're, we're here for you. We'll always be here for you. Um, you beautiful, these beautiful songs. And, and. Again, can people sing these songs today? Very few people even know. I mean, even even in the Yemenite Jewish community, 
almost nobody knows all the words yeah. to these songs. So you yeah. have to hire professional singers to sing yeah. these songs because the bride doesn't know them exactly. anymore. But the intention can still be there. The, yeah. the feelings are still there, right? Yeah. People are still, you know, we're, we're still, people still have the same feelings. So, so let's find a new way to express those same feelings. That's, that's what's marvelous about the henna ceremony is that it's always been an opportunity to, to take the form, keep the form and invest it with things that are meaningful, right? If you're a Jewish community, you need to put things that are meaningful in this henna ceremony. It's going to be different than your Muslim neighbors. Yeah. So similarly, our henna ceremonies today are going to look a little different than they did 200 years ago. The form might be similar. The content is going to express the same feelings, but but in different ways, right? Yeah. We're, we're not marrying people off at 12. We're not marrying people off, generally speaking, to strangers. You know, we're not, you know, maybe they, they even are already living together. So it's not quite the yeah. same pain of separation from right. the, the mother's house. But, but... It's still a transition. And it's, it's still, still a new opening. It's still the time of two families together. Yeah. It's still a celebration of all the things that we love about this person and, and want to show them how much we love and care about them. All those things are still true. So so just allowing those feelings to, to be shared in, in, in a structured kind of way. Let's sing some songs. Let's share some memories. Let's write some blessings. All of those things invite people to partake in a ceremony you're inviting them to participate in, in, in something that, that has meaning and that, and that has history. And they, for the most part, buy in 110%. Like, I, I, I mean, I've done some henna ceremonies which were amazing and some henna ceremonies which, you know, were working against the crowd. But, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I've always had people come up to me afterwards and say, that, that was extraordinary. And it's like, I'm not doing anything. I'm just, I'm just facilitating, it out you know? You I'm just, that's why yeah. I say I'm a ritual facilitator. <laughs> I'm just facilitating. I'm yeah. just... I'm and just, I'm giving you what you want right. without you even It's your wedding. You it's want. your family's wedding, yeah. right? I'm, yeah. I'm just allowing you to so celebrate cool. it in a way that's meaningful. You know, and, 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 the, pat, and the henna is there. The henna, do, you know, the henna, like we were saying, the henna does its magic, right? That's, that's yeah. out of our control. Yeah. But, but the, the, the design is going to be there to remind you as you're, you know, at, you know the, people always say, why henna, right? Why henna for weddings? Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I can't answer that question. But I, I think one of the reasons is because henna is the perfect symbol of of moving through a, tr a trans transitional space of yeah. moving through what what yeah. we call a liminal space liminal, in anthropology yes. because because what is henna you 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 have it on um and you can't wash it off no matter how hard you try the henna is on your hands it's you're marked you're going to carry that it's not like paint that that you are in control of yeah on the other hand you can want it to stay as long as you want, as hard as you want, but it's going to fade. Still not gonna it's going to fade. Yeah. It's going to slip through your fingers. Yeah. Just like, just like time. We can't make it go faster. We can't make it go slower. We can only hold on to marking the moments. That's the blessing that's traditionally said in Judaism, um, and which I invite people to say at the henna ceremony. There's a blessing that you say when you're at a significant moment. It's an unusual blessing. It, it, it's not really for doing anything. Normally in Judaism, you, you say a blessing like before you eat your food, mm -hmm. right? You say a blessing before you light the candles. But mm -hmm. this is just a blessing. It's not, you don't do anything. You just, you just acknowledge that you're in a moment. And the blessing, the, the blessing, the, the blessing is, mm -hmm. um, it's called the Shehechianu. The Shehechianu v'kiyamanu v'higianu lezman hazet. But blessed is the God who has kept us alive, who has sustained us, and who has brought us to this moment. Hmm. Just, just to this moment, we're gonna let it go in, in a little bit, but for now we're just gonna hold on to being here with all of you, with, with everyone who's here, with 
all of our hopes and dreams for this happy couple or for this happy bar mitzvah boy or for this, this baby that's about to be born or who is just born or whatever it is, we are going to mark our bodies as having been in this moment. Yeah. And then as you watch it fade, you're watching yourself, you're watching your own body pass through time. Yeah. You're watching yourself yeah. move. And that's so rare. We, we so rarely get to see that. We're, we're actually yeah. seeing, oh, it's the day after my henna ceremony. It's three days after my henna ceremony. Mm -hmm. It's a week after my henna ceremony. It's two weeks after my henna ceremony. You, you, you become... Just like you see a baby grow up right. from month to month. Right, you right. See you, you see your, your henna fade and you see yourself grow. And, and it sort of allows you mm -hmm. to acknowledge, I'm moving through a space. And eventually I'm going to come out, right, a threshold. I'm crossing a threshold. I'm going to come out on the other side. But, but for now I'm still in the... I'm moving. I'm, I'm stepping over the, the, the threshold. And the henna allows us to see it in, yeah. in that. that that's, it's so profound and it's so rare. And so, you know... You know Again, why reinvent the wheel? We have such mm. a powerful gift right here yeah. with henna to yeah. be able to do that. You know, let's use it and, and, and let's make new rituals with it. Let's yeah. make a ritual for graduating. Let's make a ritual for, for, for um, you know, your first breakup. Let's yeah. make a ritual. I mean, I've, I've done this. I've, you know, I've done, <laughs> let's do rituals. Divorce um, rituals. Divorce rituals. <laughs> let's, do, let's do death rituals. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's intense. That's the most intense ritual I've ever done as a henna artist wow. is for somebody who is dying. Um, their friends called me and they said, we, uh, we're friends with this woman. She's dying. Very advanced cancer. Um, and, uh, and she always wanted a henna ceremony. Um, and we're, we're going to have a henna ceremony for her. And we, we were in the hospice and we... I handed her head and her hands, and I handed her friends' hands, and uh, we sang and we laughed and we told stories and we cried wow. and we, and we marked this woman's life passing, you know, transitioning into the next phase, the next stage, whatever that is, wow. um, not you know, not allowing her to fade and fade and fade until she was gone, but to say this woman was a woman that we loved. This was someone that we knew. This was someone who had a life that we cared about. And we marked it. We really did. And, um, and she died three days later with henna on her hands, oh carrying her into the next world, which we, I mean, this is not a ceremony that, that I've made up. There are, there are traditions to do this. Well, in Morocco, um, I know that um, when I was researching for the book, I read some, I, I may get the details wrong. It's a long time ago that I was reading this, but they, often would henna people who were on their deathbeds yeah. and often the yeah, to allow them to would enter the next world. Yeah. The henna yeah. Because it was kind of like, um, yeah, like preparing for yeah. this other state and yeah. they knew they were going and they requested yeah. the henna. So it was, it was a profound, it was a, it was, I mean, I never, I knew, I know this woman at all, but, but that, I mean, that was, it was like four years ago and it has stayed with me very, I can still picture it like very vividly. Um, wow. It was an extraordinary moment, and it was uh, an extraordinary blessing and privilege. And and all of my henna work is a blessing and privilege. What a what a privilege to be able to do this. Yeah. I'm 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 always honored. That's a great reminder. To, to 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 bring blessing and joy to people's lives. It really makes me rethink a lot of the things that I do with my henna that are more business. You know, my the decisions that I make about how I mm. do henna are very business oriented. Mm, yeah. You know, like I, I try and get the bride to do the henna the day before her party because it's very hard to do it at the party mm. and it's annoying to me because right. there's so much noise and yeah. movement. 
And, but actually having hen at the party might be more of a ritualistic right. thing. It might make it more special. Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm working with communities where they're allowing me to dictate the ritual, right? That I'm not true. coming into communities where true. they're already have certain expectations for a henna party and I'm going to fight against this. And I'm you, coming and into... And you have the authority And I have the authority because... Because you are Jewish, they are right. Jewish. And they're saying, we want a Jewish henna ceremony, but we don't know what that is. And mm -hmm. I say, okay, I'm going to tell you what it is. Whereas when you're coming to like the Indian community where they have a very clear idea of what a henna right. ceremony is supposed to look like or a henna party is supposed to look like, and it often is a henna party. Yes, and you know, not a ritual. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying you can do this every time, but but yeah. th that's been my, a gift for me to be able to, to do that. Yeah. Um, so if you... Definitely to think about... You have maybe some last, I don't know if you have a last question. I can't believe people have been listening to me talk for two hours. Is that true? That's <laughs> unbelievable. Oh my God, yes, two hours. it has. Um, um, unbelievable. I've, the one question I really want to ask you is when can we have another conversation for the <laughs> podcast? Because <laughs> um, uh. you, you guys can't see this at home, but I have a whole page of notes, or not notes, but um, questions to ask about. <laughs> and we've hit maybe half that, of them, like and I feel like we could just, five. yeah, I think we could just... I could talk about Henna for hours. Yeah. I once, I gave, I gave I, people who were at Henna Tri will remember this, I actually lost my voice, I had laryngitis, <laughs> and I had to whisper, and I was doing a Henna presentation, and, uh, and I was like, nobody's going to come listen to me, and maybe I'll just, like, even if I come, I'll just do half an hour because nobody wants to listen to me croak like literally I was like fr like a frog I was croaking um like I was talking like this and uh and people sat for two two I think even and change like two hours and 15 minutes so they'll listen to this um, podcast yeah so they'll listen to yeah they better um, but I was like I was blown away I was so honored I was so touched that people listened to me croak for two hours but uh, but I can do I mean if I can do it when I learn Jainism you know, talking yeah. for two hours, yeah. you know, in, in full health is like not even a problem. I just love it. I love it so much. So, well, that's good because I love it too. And I love just listening to you. Um, but God, I really wish we could talk again. So maybe we'll, maybe. Uh, part two. Yeah, maybe we'll have part, part two. two. So this is part one of my conversation with Noam. <laughs> um, we didn't really get to talk about all of our conversations about Moroccan henna when I was oh, writing yeah. the book with Nick. Oh yeah, and that's really, that was, that was like, really special. Yeah, that was really special for me too. And I and I really wanted to go more into Moroccan henna. We yeah. touched on it a little bit yeah. and Moroccan Jewish so we'll henna. And yeah, God, there's so much more on my list that I'd like to talk about and probably more things will be added to Ugh. it. For those of you listening at home, I don't know if you guys are taking notes, but I have like a page of notes <laughs> here of stuff that he said, yeah. things that I want to remember, especially like the myths that were broken. Um, so is there, any, is there anything final that you want to say or is there anybody that you would like me to talk to or... Oh. Gosh. Any direction you want me um, to go, pen artist or otherwise? Yeah, well, I, I just love that you're doing this, and I, I think it's so great. I think it's a, a conversation that's so like needed in the henna world. I think we 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 get either um, like zoned into our own worlds of like I'm going to do henna on my own, or we get sucked into this social media and I don't want to say it's shallow but it, it's very like posting like look at this henna that I did look at this henna that yeah. I did look at this henna that I did yeah. look I did this party or I have a question and they're often like they're like such business questions of like yes. I have a party and there's 40 people and I don't know how much to charge and like yes. blah 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 and like maybe I'm not like I'll, I'll be honest I'm not very business minded so I, I often pay very little attention to that and that's why <laughs> I'm glad that thank god I have the means to, to do other things for a living and not rely on henna for a living because I would make zero dollars yeah. um, because I do it for love I do it because this is meaningful to me um, but um, 
But this is a conversation, this, this, to hear other artists talking about what drives us as artists, what inspires yeah. us about henna, what drew us to henna, and what continues to draw us to henna. I think those are so great. I mean, I think I could list a hundred thousand artists to talk to. I mean, okay, obviously, we'll talk another time we'll talk about another that. Time about you that. You know, I, would love, I would love to hear you interview Nick, of course. I'd yeah. love to hear you interview um, Rebecca Friedner and yeah. Nev Levin, who are two artists yeah. that have an extraordinary aesthetic as artists. Yeah, I totally um, agree. They're both on my uh, list. So look out guys uh, or girls. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm excited to see, I'm excited to see all your podcasts and okay. I'm, I'm so grateful for, for spending these lovely two hours and plus with oh, you thank talking you. Well, about this has been great. This is our exactly favorite topic of conversation. For. I really, um, I also wanted to do the same thing was get away from, uh, you know, just talking about as a business, just talking about like kind of the mechanics of henna mm. and really get into who we are as artists yeah. and, for me, that's like so fascinating. What a treat. So I'm just sharing my fascination with others. What a treat. And I appreciate you being here, coming all the thank way out you. to the wilds of Brooklyn. Yeah, thank you. Thank you from the <laughs> civilization of Manhattan. Yes, exactly. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, that is the end of part two of what now seems to be an ongoing conversation between me and Noam. That was really incredible. And as we discussed, we definitely want to talk again and cover a lot of other topics. Even as I was listening to this, I was thinking, oh, I wish I asked him that at this point. I wish I, we had gone into this topic. I think we could have gone on uh, a lot of different tangents there. So I hope that uh, just whetted your appetite for future conversations. Thanks again, Noam. That was really awesome. I can't wait to see you again and uh, take this conversation to the next level. So thanks again for listening. Please leave your comments either on iTunes or on the blog, caughtredhandedpodcast.com or on our Facebook page. And please let me know if you have any requests for people you'd like me to talk to, questions you'd like me to ask people, etc. Also, feel free to give me feedback, either positive or negative. We can only grow through feedback. If you feel embarrassed, um, posting something negative you can just email me privately and we can discuss it so uh thanks again for listening as i said and thanks to shlomi Cohen for the music on this podcast i'm getting a lot of compliments on that which i'm passing on to him and as i told you in the last podcast if you like his music and you want to support his art you can uh, contribute to his kickstarter campaign it's there's a link to it on his website shlomicohen.com and uh, support independent artists there. Thank you also to Nash Koram. She did the gorgeous photo that is on the blog and the Facebook page and also on iTunes. That's it for me, Lisa Butterworth, and this is the Caught Red-Handed Podcast. I'll see you guys next episode. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.